Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So we're sitting around trying to figure out what this show is going to be about. What this episode's going to be about. Yeah, right. We know what the show's about. Well, what the show's about how people listen to music today. And then, so we're trying to figure out, well, what would we do an episode about? Because last week we did London Calling. The last episode was we talked about one of our favorite albums. We did. And then, we're like, we don't have a guest lined up this week. And now we start to look unprofessional because it's like we don't really have a topic. But we're not ashamed of exposing this to our listeners, the fact that... Well, that's exactly... That's what I'm saying. It's, Go ahead. It's like, we don't... Look, we're going to let you know that we don't have much to talk about this week. However, we're just going to kind of, like, just wing it. We each got our favorite warm morning beverage, and we're just going to sit. And uh, one of the problems with trying to decide what we were going to talk about today is that there is a rumor that Apple will be having an event next week and that invitations for that event are going to go out today or tomorrow. And that at this rumored event, there may be some music-related announcements, uh, particularly about a, a classical music service that Apple bought, what, a few months ago and talked about perhaps releasing early in 2022. Right. They've said that they're releasing a specific app for classical music for Apple Music sometime early this year. There's been some indications that it's nearly ready because apparently in a recent beta of Apple Music for Android, there were some mentions in the code. And that's how these rumors you know, get fueled, that something's named in code and then people can see that something is, you know, one or two steps away from being public. Since they're probably going to be presenting the 27-inch iMac, the new 27-inch iMac with Apple processors, since they've been going along the line and that's the next one up, I don't think they'd just do that. There could be some iPhone-related thing. I kind of think that we might have some HomePod-related thing. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article I wrote for the Intego Mac security blog. There's this interesting technology for smart home devices called Thread, and Thread is a Bluetooth low-energy mesh network that builds itself automatically. And the only two devices that work as what's called border routers so that they connect the Thread devices to your Wi-Fi network are the Apple TV 4K, the latest model, and the HomePod Mini. If you think back to when they introduced the HomePod Mini, Apple had this big set showing a house with many rooms, and it's very possible that at this event on the 8th of March, they'll be presenting something more in the smart home area because they seem to be moving in that direction. Now, a mesh network is typically used now for Wi-Fi, right? They're very popular ways of having multiple points in the house, and then it just creates a, a big network, which I have it, you have it. We use, I use yeah, Orby, right? Have you have an Orby? You have? Yeah, I have an Orby. And the advantage of an, a mesh network is you don't have a single point radiating, so you'll have weak spots in your house. You set up your two or three devices so they cover everything. But this and mesh system the, is, is like at the Bluetooth level. Right. It's at the Bluetooth, low energy with a long range. And you can have all your smart home devices at various locations in the house, and they all kind of link together. I, I bought an Eve Weather, which is a weather sensor, and I put it about, I'm going to say 15 meters from my house 
on that side of the house is my Apple TV 4K and connected automatically. 15 meters. That's like 50 feet. 15 meters, 45 yeah. feet. Yeah, 45, 50 feet. When you think about older Bluetooth, where you roughly had a 10 meter range, the newer Bluetooth, I guess it's Bluetooth 5 or whatever, it has almost a 100 meter range. You know what I haven't asked you about is, can you send music over it? No, this, this particular Bluetooth Low Energy is just for low amounts of data. There's another Bluetooth Low Energy that works with headphones. Oh, yeah. But this particular, there are, there are various levels of Bluetooth. The amount of data it sends is very small, which is ideal for smart home devices, particularly those that are battery powered. Apparently, this battery can last like a year, whereas my previous weather station, it used two AAA batteries that lasted three or four months, depending on the temperature. When it's cold, they didn't last as long. Right, because for home things, you really only need a couple of on-off commands and maybe a couple of numbers about dimming or a couple of numbers about, you know, timing or, or you know, whatever these devices use. They don't really need a lot of Switches. Well, the weather station, it checks the temperature, humidity, and barometer every 10 minutes. Right. So you get it. It only needs two numbers. So when I manually check it, it loads all of this data. So it's a very small amount of data. It's a, it's a kilobyte of data. Probably not much more than that. Well, for each measurement, because if it's measuring every 10 minutes. So if you haven't checked it in a while, it's going to take 30 seconds or something to load. But it's relatively efficient. And so I'm expecting Apple to move more into the smart home and to make the HomePod mini a really central device that is not the speaker that was the original HomePod, but that is the Siri command center because you can control HomeKit stuff with Siri commands. Well, it'd be like um, when that works with it'd be this. Like, uh, it'd be like the Alexa, you know, but Apple, right? Yeah. be more like that. But it makes sense for Apple to do more around this thread thing since they're the only company yet that has a border router that's made the commitment. And I think the first one came out in 2020, the Apple TV 4K. I'm not sure. But so this has been, you know, for a while. And if you look in the tech specs for these two devices, you'll see thread mentioned. But Apple has not said anything about this in their presentations yet. That's kind of weird. Does anybody doing anything with it besides Apple? Oh, there's a number of companies that make products. So these Eve Home products that I was talking about. There are other companies. Belkin's Wemo line works with Thread. Nanoleaf, another company that makes lights. However, Philips Hue is not yet Thread compatible. And I, I don't think they can take older hardware and make it Thread compatible. So Philips Hue has a big installed base. It might be difficult for them to make the change. The big advantage of this mesh network if you have any Philips Hue light bulbs, you'll know that you can control them two ways. One is directly from the app on the phone when you're within Bluetooth range. And the other is using a Philips Hue base station or a hub. And in order to get that, that bridging to HomeKit and to use Siri commands, you need a hub. And if you have multiple devices from multiple vendors and multiple hubs, you see where this is going. And the advantage of Thread is it avoids all of that. It's a mess. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has problems with, you know, six different vendors with six different devices that do not talk to each other. You got, and this won't, this will illuminate the, the that though, right? The only things I have are HomeKit devices and Philips Hue devices. That's not exactly true because my Dyson floor lamp is separate. It doesn't have either of them, but it's not something that I want to control remotely. I want to control it when I sit down. So I use the touch sensors on it to control it. But yeah, it is, for the future, it's an interesting way of sort of 
putting all this stuff under a tent. Now, of course, that has nothing to do with music except for the fact that the HomePod Mini is a music device, but it's a lot more than a music device. Well, I, I was just going to say that, you know, if I've got it all on my phone, I, I do house music on my phone, too. I mean, you know, I, I decide where music is being played with my phone. So having this these disparate apps I've got to use for home stuff is very annoying. And if it could all be in HomeKit, I guess, you know, you could even have remote music in in HomeKit, I guess, eventually, it's really kind of the same sort of thing. Well, you can create automations and scenes in HomeKit using music, and I think you can even use Sonos devices. So there, there's a whole, it's, it's currently a jigsaw puzzle, and it would be better if it was together. So like, I'd like to see Sonos support HomeKit, and it doesn't yet. The um, But the ability to control music, that's still quite limited. It's really just turn it on, fade it off, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not like... Uh, you could probably make shortcuts to, like, play the last album I listened to or something. Right. But I don't really know how... Because it's not like Apple Script where you get a lot of, you know, options. It's very limited. Yeah, yeah it's hard code. Have you looked at shortcuts for music? Um, I haven't looked at a lot of shortcuts because, you know, some of the stuff that I'm interested in, there's no way you're going to be able to do it on iOS, like changing the metadata. They're not going to, you yeah. know, if you want to edit a track or you want to change the artwork or if you want to, you know, manipulate a playlist in uh, idiosyncratic ways that you can do on the desktop, that's just not going to happen on the I on iOS. Yeah. So I really don't, I like I said, I for me, um, I don't use the iOS music app that way. I, I use the remote app, really, to control music in the house. And that requires that my Macs have, uh, you know, their, their library set up correctly and playlists ready to go. So that's what I do. And that's what I. That's where I manipulate everything. I, just like you, you know, yeah. I have a library yeah. on my yeah, yeah. desktop. So over the weekend, I was thinking the way God, the way the Lord intended it. <laughs> so over the weekend, I, I was thinking about my music gear, my listening gear, and thinking. You know, I, I follow sort of what's new and I see ads and I read things. And I was thinking that, like, sometimes you sh don't really need to change. Sometimes you could just be satisfied with what you have. And uh, I, I've described it a couple of times on the podcast. I've got two listening zones in my office, one on my desk and another pair of speakers facing the sofa that's on an angle on the side. So I can't have the same speakers. And it's kind of wasteful to have to have two you know, pairs of speakers in, in one room, but it just fits the way I work. And, but I was thinking, you know, I, I understand people who get that dopamine hit from buying new stuff and plugging it in and this is new and it's got to be better. And I just kind of, I've gotten to the point where, you know, it's like that old pair of jeans that's really broken in and worn and comfortable. That's kind of how I feel about my audio equipment these days that I really don't want to buy anything new. Wow. That's, uh, that's serious. You got a serious problem there. It, it could You're be immune a, to gear acquisition syndrome <laughs> now. You've been vaccinated. What did they give well, you over there? It, it, it depends because, well, I did spend, I did buy a midlife crisis camera a few months ago. Right. Yeah. I'll link to an episode of my photoactive podcast about that. I've got all the gear I need for podcasting. It's true that I've gotten to the point where there's, I mean, I bought a new TV in Black Friday, right? And a new sound bar. Right, so, right. I, I'm I'm set for a long time. You're loaded. You're locked and loaded. Well, it's more well, a question of at some point you you either keep buying stuff and I buy stuff and I resell it on eBay. You know that. And and you either keep buying and selling stuff or you just realize that 
it's not going to make that much of a difference. And that's kind of how I feel these well, days. Well, that's that's true. Um, I, I I've done that. Maybe in the past ten years, I've had maybe three or four receivers, uh, two or three sets of speakers, mixing and matching stuff. And when it comes right down to it, you could you could just spend the rest of your life buying new equipment and saying, "Oh, it sounds a little better." <laughs> <laughs> This five hundred dollars sounds a little better. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah, I don't. I but I do like the gear acquisition. I like it as I was telling you earlier. I like the dopamine hit I get is when I push the um, button to initiate the sale right up until the time the thing is delivered on my doorstep, and that at that point I become disinterested. But <laughs> during those three, four, five days, it's incredibly exciting in my mind. There's all kinds of little electricity. Uh, things going on. I'm so excited. I can't wait for my new thing to get here. Why does it take so long to get stuff over there? I don't know. Lately, it's been taking a lot longer. There is a lot of back orders as well, of course, because of, you know, the, uh, what are they, what are they, what are the, what's the, the, uh, supply chain? What's the phrase they use? What is it? The supply chain problems? Yeah, that's it. Supply chain issues. The supply chain issue. Yeah. So, the stuff isn't getting to this country. The stuff isn't moving fast enough in the country. And so it takes a long yeah, time. Yeah, I, I haven't bought any gear in a while, but pretty much everything I order here is next day delivery. That's nice. Boy, it used to be like that here. It was really getting like that here. Yeah. You'd get next day, maybe two days. Now it's easily three, four, five days. I mean, even cat food for Christ. You know, it's, it takes me a week to get a thing of cat food. Well, Amazon just opened a new depot about 15 miles from me. So we're getting all our stuff from that new location, which probably means that it's coming a little bit more quickly than where it was before. Now is the time to order all those new cables and things like that so you can... (laughs) Well, I, I have looked at a couple of things just out of curiosity. Brown Audio, which is... It's not actually the Brown company that Dieter Rams worked for. I think it's a company that bought the rights to use the name because Brown still exists. They sell clocks and watches and, you know, kitchen appliances, razors and all that. I think it's a company that bought the name. And so they released three different speakers that go back to the sort of Dieter Rams style and all that, the minimalist style. But they're expensive. These are like these are like um, Bluetooth AirPlay speakers. There's a small one, a medium one, and a large one. And the large one is pretty big and you can pair them for stereo and all that. And it's like, instead of the pair of speakers that I use in my relaxed listening area facing the sofa, what if I just had one device there? Like we've talked in the past with, you know, the two speakers, uh, a mild stereo effect. And I keep looking around and I keep thinking, I'm not spending a thousand pounds for something like that, which is what these things cost. Yeah, it is. It's really strange how it, it well, I guess that's what that's what the market will bear. But as you say, you've got some really nice speakers over there. I don't know if I would consider having like two pairs of speakers, you know, wasteful because you've got two zones. So they certainly expect you to have two pairs of speakers. You could certainly put them in the same room. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, we use our speakers as tools. A lot of people just put them in the room and say, okay, that's where the sound comes from. But I mean, to us... Yeah. You know, well, that's the speakers on my desk are the tools, right? That's for yeah. serious listening. Um, that's when I'm, you know, editing podcast. But there's a device, and I know someone who has this. It's the Muso second generation, MU-SO. It's made by Name Audio, and it's a single device with multiple speakers, the kind of thing that looks like a set-top box in a way, right? And he really loves it. 
he, he thinks it's great. And I, I kind of thought maybe I'd want something like that, but it's just too expensive. And it's, it's well-designed, it's, it's nifty-looking. But the other thing that I keep thinking of is none of these devices are going to be around in 20 years. I mean, the software won't work anymore in 20 years. So the, the way I work here, my two sets of speakers are connected to my Sonos amp. I can connect these speakers to any amp I want. When the Sonos amp doesn't work anymore, they'll upgrade Sonos or another company, or I just won't use Sonos or whatever. So well, by then there'll be music pills. Well, so you, you could just pop some. Music I know pills. you keep talking about music pills, and I, I definitely agree that it's a, an, an intriguing idea. It is. I'm, I'm sure they're working on it. Well, I don't. They better be. I've been talking about it for like thirty years. <laughs> they got to be work. Someone must have picked up on it that I've mentioned it. Well, we'll, we'll see. Thought what of it was a good idea and marketable. Yeah, that's the key. It's got to be marketable. Yes. Yes. It's no sense in having p- music pills if no one really understands well, how great they're going to be. Exactly. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. But so I look at some of these things and I, I keep my eyes. Uh, I, I'll tell you what interests me in audio. It's AirPlay compatible devices, essentially, mm. because yep. you're not tied to things, right? You can use them anywhere. You can control from your Mac. You can control from your phone, etc. That's what I pay attention to. Yeah. I also have become kind of snobbish about AirPlay 2. I don't think I would ever consider another piece of equipment unless it had AirPlay 2. I got the Roku Stream Bar, whatever the whatever they're calling that. That's got AirPlay 2 in it. I was so happy about it. It's not it's not a great sounding soundbar. It's perfectly fine for its size, but the fact that it can do AirPlay 2 yeah, is terrific. That, that's cuz I don't need an I don't need an Apple uh, I don't need an Apple TV. Ah, right, because you don't have the Apple TV device, yeah. See, I do because I need to have this stuff to write about it. So I do have the Apple TV. And when I got my 65-inch OLED TV, I bought a new Apple TV because mine was previous gen, and it didn't have HDMI 3.1.B.65, and it's like... And and, it, and it, someone spilled coffee on it. I'll bet that doesn't have a little stain of coffee on it. So I got to get rid of this. I no, I'm actually going to put it on eBay soon, I think, yeah. to be honest. But... See, one of the problems, I think we discussed this previously, is that with TVs, there are so many standards that change so quickly. With audio, it's great. You've got your AirPlay, you've got your lossless, whatever it is. It's pretty much frozen. Even Bluetooth. People can settle on Bluetooth sure. if they want. But with TVs, to get all the features, you've got to have the right features on all the devices, whether it's a set-top box or the TV. You've got to have the right cable because certain HDMI cables don't work with the newest type of features that they need because of HDCP, which is high-definition copy protection. Oh, God, what a mess. It's horrible. And, and when you think about, you know, we, we had DRM on music. We got rid of it fine, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Yes, streaming still has DRM, but you're not owning the file, so it's not the same. But with films and TV, it's such, you know, you might buy a Blu-ray today that you could not play because you don't have the latest thing in the Blu-ray player to decode the thing. And it's like, and it can't ease, it doesn't necessarily fall back on a, a lower quality thing. It might just fail. Like, uh, what was that? What was the what was the, the protocol that was supposed to be able to do that? Was supposed to be able to... Send whatever you whatever your device needed. What is it? QX, QXA? No, M, MX, MQA, MQA. Is that what it was? Oh, MQA. Yeah, the, yeah. Wasn't that supposed to like? I know what device you are. I'll send you the exact encoding that you need. And yeah, and encoding and bit rate, etc. Yeah, that's funny. 
Um, what do you think this Apple Classical Music app is going to be? It's going to be just a streaming thing for iOS, do you think? Oh, I'm sure, pretty sure it's for the desktop as well. Uh, oh, okay. Be, because I, I, I think it's going to be, I believe, is it the podcast app on Mac is just the port of the iPad app. Right. And I'm pretty sure the classical music app is going to be the same. No, it is. It is. It's a Catalyst app, which is the framework that allows an iOS app to work on Mac. I'm pretty sure the classical music app is going to be the same. What I expect is in addition to a curated selection of music playlists and, you know, here's albums and here's different periods and learn about classical music. I really hope that there is a very advanced search feature in it. Because when I'm looking for, I don't know, I want to listen to Alfred Brendel's second set of Beethoven piano sonatas, right? And I know it's Alfred Brendel. I know it's piano sonatas. I know which label it's on. It, this was the one on Phillips, I think. Well, I said I know, but I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure it was the Phillips one. But I want to be able to look for, show me all of the Alfred Brendel Beethoven piano sonatas. I don't want to find that my search results only show 50 or 100 of whatever that comes up and half of them don't have Alfred Brendel. It's like searching for anything on Amazon these days. You get all these sponsored links from everyone. And for me, this classical music app will fail if it doesn't have really robust advanced searching. Were you familiar That's with the company? classical music listeners want. Were you familiar with the, the app before, with, earl with the earlier iteration of it? Primephonic. I had tried the app once, but a few years ago. The, the, one of the problems with Primephonic is that they originally were only limited to, to independent labels. And I believe that when Apple bought them up, they had come up with some deals with some of the major labels. But I never really followed it because... Why would I pay another 10 bucks a month for a streaming service when I've got all the music I want? Yes, because I'd get advanced search and curation and stuff, but it seems like, you know, it seems like an expense I didn't want to pay. At the time, yeah. Like, was it like version one? Well, or I something? don't think this is going to cost any more for Apple. I think this is just going to be part of Apple Music. I think what they want is they want to get the classical music listeners who are using Cobuzz or Tidal or other services. They want to get them. Another thing I'd like to see is liner notes. And I don't know how many labels will be able to provide digital liner notes. They should all be able to provide PDFs of anything, you know, recent in the past five or 10 years. That's something that I believe Cobuzz has that for a lot of classical records as well as jazz and rock. But that's really important for classical listeners. You want to read about the works. You want to read about the artists. You want to maybe you want the texts right. if it's an opera. You yeah. want to be able to see that. Well, you know, it's I would like that for regular music, too. But that doesn't that doesn't seem to be a lot of it's not a lot of demand enthusiasm no. for that. No. Whereas in the classical and even in the jazz genre, I think people want that as well because jazz fans are interested in in the personnel on a record. And if you get an album of some soloist who's got a bunch of sidemen, you don't know who the sidemen are, you've got to Google it. And that seems like Apple shouldn't require people to leave their boundaries to find this information. I was just remembering, like, looking at records, jazz records that my parents had, and you turned it over on the other side, and there'd be a paragraph about each musician, how they were feeling it when they were recording, stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, they'd usually get somebody from some jazz magazine to write something. But but that sort of stuff, not not how they're feeling, but the, the personnel is kind of interesting for a jazz recording. Uh, you know, to, to know that the pianist on Kind of Blue is Bill Evans is actually quite interesting if— 
when you discovered it as a jazz fan, you thought, hey, right, definitely, this is Bill Evans' sound that Miles took and that, that just fit just right, that sort of thing. And it's kind of like the Rock Family Trees, right? Where you see who was in this, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Where did they come from and where do they go? And it's the same kind of thing. You see in jazz, it's more common for someone to sit in on a recording. But you want to see that, that, that web of relationships in jazz. Yeah, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, we talk about this in rock all the time. So-and-so played with so-and-so and then played with so-and-so. And, -so and um, that's fascinating for people like us, I realize, that regular folks who just like to listen to music don't care about it but we we who obsess about it um are just fascinated with the minutia of it you know it's funny you mentioned that because yesterday on twitter someone posted a picture of i think it was the back of the cheech and chong album that had the song basketball jones and the personnel on that song are you ready for this george harrison on guitar klaus vorman on bass guitar Jim Carstein on drums, Jim Keltner on percussion, Carol King on electric piano, Nikki Hopkins on piano, Tony Scott on saxophone, Billy Preston on organ. Wow. And among the backing vocalist is Ronnie Spector. Wow. So that that's 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 more the novelty factor, right? But when you see that, you say, wow, yeah, because those are serious, you know, George Harrison, Nikki Hopkins, Billy Preston, those are serious names on what was just basically, you know, a funny song. A comedy album. Yeah. yeah. And even by that by that point, they weren't even. I don't know if Cheech and Sean were that huge by that point. When did that come out? This was see, see how we're getting. See how this is. Yeah. See what happened. <laughs> this was August seventy three. Yeah, seventy three. Yeah, they weren't super. So stars I'm yet. thinking. Yeah, it wasn't until so this was their third album, Los Cochinos, but it was number two. It charted at number two. The second album, Big Bamboo, charted at number two. The first one, 28. That was actually, that was their peak, charting at number two. So that was the, and that was the only time they had a song that I remember. No, I remember no, no. Was, There's the Christmas, is Santa Claus and his old lady. Okay, don't remember that. Oh, I know the dude. <laughs> yeah, the Santa Claus and his old lady. Oh, you got it. You know that song, right? The one he tells the story about. The yeah. That was December 71, and it charted up to position number three, but it wasn't on an album. No, it was a single. That's what yeah. Wikipedia says. It was a single. Basketball Jones was August 73. There were a couple of other singles, but were they all songs, or were they all... Well, they did a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Well, probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, anyway. that's what com people used to play comedy on the radio. They don't do that anymore. Well, I mean, they do, but they I don't. I know, right? It's like... they. Well, but comedy is yeah. everywhere. It's it's funny. I I don't know stand-up comedians. I don't know these people. And on Netflix, there are all these stand-up comedians who have these one-hour things. And the other day I went and there's one. It's like, okay, she looks like a funny woman. And I put it on. It's like five minutes. I'm like, what? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, okay. It's just, it's, it's not that it's not funny. It's that it's stupid. Okay. And maybe you have to take the comedy pill to appreciate it. And maybe, you know, we're attuned to a different kind of comedy, but uh, I don't know. And I'm, every once in a while I do this and I go to Amazon or Netflix when they show me these things, you know, and, and I'll try five minutes of a few of them. If it doesn't grab me in five minutes, I'm not going to laugh. Well, no, so, of course not. All right. Should we go to the next tracks? Sure. Okay. So the other day I was reading, and I have no idea what made me think of this phrase, wasn't anything that either had seeds or clouds in what I was reading, but all of a sudden I was reminded that there was a song called They're Seeding the Clouds. And I'm thinking, who did that? Do you remember this? Do you know this? No. 
No, it doesn't ring a bell. It's a song by Tuxedo Moon from their first album in oh. 1981. The album is Half Mute. And I looked it up and it's like, yeah, Tuxedo Moon. That was really good stuff. And so I listened to that. And so my pick is going to be a record that combined, well, a record. It is a record combining Half Mute and Scream With A View, which was an EP that came out before Half Mute. Half Mute was the first album. And I really liked this band back in the day. So, so Tuxedo Moon was this semi-progressive band. They were the, I think they were the first band signed to the residence label Ralph Records. And they did a few small EPs, and then they did a couple albums. Then they moved to Brussels for some reason. Stephen Brown, Blaine Renninger, uh, Winston Tong joined them after a while. They moved to Brussels. They made a few records. They broke up. They got back together. But their first three albums are really good. And it's this... It's this really interesting post-punk sound that is both eerie and experimental, but not too experimental. And there's a lot of minor chord modal stuff, and there's this mood to it. It's slightly electronic, but it's not only because it's the prominent saxophone. Uh, the lyrics are, they're not Dylan-esque, but they're not clash-esque either, right? They're, they're somewhere in between, you know, they're, they don't mean necessarily a lot. But catchy tunes. So my, my pick this week is Half Mute by Tuxedo Moon, which is together with Scream with a View, particularly the last song on the album, which is KM slash Seeding the Clouds. Now, I don't think the KM was for my initials. It's basically kind of two tracks that segue into each other. It's a nearly 12-minute track, which is the one that kind of came to mind, and I don't remember how. What have you got, Doug? I've had synthesizers on the mind uh, recently. Behringer, which is a, an audio company that makes headphones and speakers and things like that, they have a line of uh, retro synthesizers that emulate the sounds, the classic sounds of the 70s and 80s synthesizers, and I have some familiarity with, with some of those things. So I've been thinking about synthesizers, and also recently I was reminded that Stevie Wonder was one of the first adopters of the synthesizer and introduced it into, made it seem more normal in pop music, let's say. And Talking Book, I think, is a really good example of that. It's uh, pretty much just Stevie on everything, meaning all synthesizers. I think he used a clavinet. There are guitars on it. Jeff Beck is on it, and uh, Ray Parker Jr. is on it, too. But otherwise, it's just Stevie playing synthesizers. And I do recall that Giorgio Moroder did some stuff with Stevie Wonder and introduced him to uh, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the things that he was doing. But one of the great things about Stevie Wonder's use of synthesizers is that he, he did them very thoughtfully. He didn't say, hey, look, I got a lot of synthesizers on this record, like a lot of people did early on. They, you know, like e, I'm thinking ELP. It's like, look, I've got a synthesizer. But Stevie um, was able to incorporate the, the synthetic sounds and make it an acceptable pop sound. Uh, so it's a great record for that. And I, I do want to give it a listen. I haven't listened to it all the way through probably a couple of decades. So I'm really looking forward to it. I especially love the bass lines in Maybe Your Baby. That's the one I really like. But anyway, Talking Book by Stevie Wonder is my next track. This was episode number 230 of the next track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, and it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.